Welcome to Pod Bless Canada, the podcast series presented by the McDonald Laurier Institute. I'm Aaron Woodrick, the MLI's Domestic Policy Program Director. Today's topic falls into the category of things that might not sound very exciting, but are actually pretty important. We're going to be talking about Canada's system of parliamentary government, how power is exercised by the federal government, and how things have changed over the years, including specifically during the current COVID-19 pandemic. And to do all of this, I'm very pleased to be joined by Dr. Jonathan Malloy, the Honorable Dick and Ruth Bell Chair in Canadian Parliamentary Democracy and Professor in the Department of Political Science at Carleton University in Ottawa. Dr. Malloy, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks very much. I'm glad to be here. Now, I suppose we should start with a definition. We talk about parliamentary government. I think it's fair to say a lot of average people don't exactly know what that means. So I put it to you. How would you define parliamentary government? And what are some of the important ways it differs from other forms of democratic government? It's a very abstract term. I think the most concrete way of thinking about first is comparing it with the American system of government that most people have a general understanding of, which is not a parliamentary, it's a presidential system of government. So in that government, there's a very clear separation between the president and the Congress. The president, of course, is not a member of Congress. Instead, there's a separation of powers. And as we see a lot in American politics, these days, there's often a lot of wrestling back and forth between the president and Congress in terms of getting any kind of government business done. And then in Canada, though, we have parliamentary system, which is really a fusion of the two. So the government sits in parliament. So the prime minister and the cabinet are expected to be members of parliament and specifically the House of Commons these days. So we've really fused the two systems together. And if you look around the world, generally, most systems of government fit more or less into one of those two categories, either a parliamentary fused system where the, the government sits in the legislature or a presidential system of government where there's a separation of powers. There's more variations, but that's the basic two distinctions. If you think about parliamentary government, there are certainly different types. There's lots of different parliamentary democracies out there. Some are monarchies, like we are, a constitutional monarchy. Some are not. You could call them republics in that way. There's no monarchy. There's president or something like that. But it's the prime minister that generally has the power. So that's some further categories there. And the last one, just to get finally to Canada, particularly, of course, we are a Westminster style democracy. We really inherited a particular parliamentary system from Britain, and we, along with other countries like Australia and New Zealand, also have those. And the Westminster system is like most parliamentary systems in that the government is in parliament. I would say the Westminster system is particularly notable, perhaps, for a lot of unwritten rules and conventions. Generally, if you look at most parliamentary systems in Europe, particularly, there's fairly clear rules on how everything works. In most cases, those systems were set up relatively recently, say in the last 75 years after the Second World War often. They're the relatively new systems that way. The Westminster system, of course, evolved over hundreds of years. We've had in Canada for over 150 years. And as a result, a lot of stuff has just evolved. And so Westminster is particularly characterized by a lot of unwritten conventions, a lot of norms on how things should be, but the rules aren't really written down or they're a little vague, etc. there. And you think about Canadian government, particularly the role of the Governor General, for example, there's a lot of things where it's really kind of a little unclear what's happened. There's a lot of unwritten conventions about what goes on in parliamentary government. So we can go on and on, but like, that's really what we mean by the system of government here in Canada. It's quite different from the United States, not that different from a lot of other countries, but particularly in Canada, I think even more than Britain, it rests on a lot of unwritten conventions, a lot of unwritten rules on exactly how things work. That can make for flexibility, can make for adaptability, there's a lot of good things about that, but it also means that sometimes no one really agrees on the exact rules on how things work. And that's, of course, a recurring issue in Canadian politics, for sure. Thank you for that. And I think to come back to your point about unwritten rules, I think that's probably going to inform a lot about what we're going to talk about for the rest of the podcast, because we want to talk about what has changed. And if things aren't written down, if there are conventions, conventions, of course, can evolve organically over time. 
And so we can talk a little bit about concentration of power. In parliamentary government, does the structure of our system matter more in a situation where the party that is in power, so today that would be the Liberal Party, doesn't also have majority control of parliament? So in minority governments, because you don't have situations in, for example, the United States where the legislature is separate from the executive, there is no such thing as a minority situation. In Canada, there is. How does parliamentary government impact the ability of a government of an executive to get things done? That's a great question. The short answer is it makes things more interesting. <laughs> a small bit of theory and then sort of get to the concrete Canadian example there. I mean, another thing about parliamentary systems, and particularly the Westminster system, is how Parliament really has two functions. It has a representation function. So we have 338 members of Parliament elected from across the country, you know, the voices of Canada, that way to represent Canada. But we also have a responsible government function, which of course is the core of the system where the government must be responsible to Parliament. It must retain the confidence of Parliament, again, which is different than, say, the U.S. Those are a little contradictory. One is sort of that Parliament is there for sort of the voices of all Canada to be represented, et cetera, there. But it's also a place to get business done, where the government must retain the confidence of Parliament. It must be able to manage its legislative program through Parliament, and it must be responsible to Parliament. One is sort of a very decentralizing, 330 voices going on. The other is a very centralizing dynamic where the government has to basically keep control of what's going on to get anything done. That dynamic works. That's the nature of parliamentary government. Where it becomes particularly interesting is in times of minority government, as you said, where the government does not control a majority of the seats in the House of Commons. And so it's not guaranteed that's going to get business done because a majority of parliamentarians are not the governing party. They basically want the government to fail. And that's something that's particularly distinct about Canada, even more than other Westminster systems, is that we have such a long tradition of minority government in this country. We've had, I think now, this is the 14th minority government we've had. If you look even at Britain and Australia, they've had minority government, but it's much rarer than that. And that has to do, I think, partly with the party systems, how things are elected. In short, it's not unusual to have minority governments in Canada. It's really unusual in even similar countries like Britain or Australia. And it's even less common in other parliamentary democracies like most of Europe. What they have there instead, they have coalition governments. Uh, which, of course, we've never really had in Canada federally. And so in a coalition government, different parties make deals to form the government together. And then altogether, they do have majority of the parliament, usually that way. So coalition governments are pretty fractious. You know, they can have some partners that don't get along very well, but they've made a deal. So there's predictability that way. But in Canada, we don't do coalition government. We've just never really been, a, well, with some exceptions, it's never been a serious option. Instead, we choose the instability of minority government, where the government kind of sails into parliament every day without having majority seats, without having firm deals with the other parties. They might have temporary deals, but not firm deals, etc. And that makes for constantly fractious parliament. Minority parliaments are always very fractious because we can't really predict what's going to happen. And the government does not have sufficient control of parliament to just get things done the way it wants to do, which generally will have with majority parliament, etc. So again, that's why it's particularly distinct to Canada. You don't see that in other countries like Britain or Australia, where you have this ongoing instability called minority government, which we're just, we're used to in Canada. We always debate it. We always, there's all sorts of issues about it and stuff there. And that gets back to the basic issue that parliament is both a representative function, that represents the country, but it's also a place of responsible government where stuff has to get done. And if the government can't get stuff done, it falls and usually there's an election and stuff. So we have sort of permanent instability in Canadian politics because we have this high tolerance for minority governments, or at least we choose them over coalitions, for example. Interesting. Given the frequency of minority governments and the fact that we have them often in this country, then this raises the question about whether the structure of our government, of the parliamentary system, is that a feature or a bug? There are those who would argue that 
Having minority governments provides more of a check on power. Obviously, the government needs to constantly seek the confidence of the House. But the flip side is that it may make it difficult to get anything done. It may create constant obstacles and sort of create incentives, as I think you could arguably see today, for governments to be sort of always having one eye on how to get the majority. So it makes it difficult to get things done. Where do you come down on that? Is the frequency of minority governments a feature of our system or is it a bug? Well, it's clearly both. It's a feature that has some strengths to it. It also has some trade-offs. You characterize them fairly well there. One of the general advantages of minority government then is that the government can't dominate. It has to listen to others. It has to work with other parties that way. That seems more democratic and so on. It listens to more voices and things that way. It also means instability because you know we don't really know what's going to happen. The government doesn't know what's going to happen. Within the government for the bureaucracy and stuff, it's very unpredictable sort of what kind of deals are going to be cooked up, what's going to happen. You know, every day there's something new that way. And although we don't see this in Canada as much, you know, sometimes it's perhaps less democratic when you have these constant deals going on. We've seen a bit of this under the Trudeau minority. We saw this even more with the Stephen Harper minority of 10 years ago, where Mr. Harper's conservatives were really great at playing off all the parties against each other and stuff. They make a deal with one, and then they make a deal with another one, and then they bluff their way through, hoping that you know one of the parties would blink, etc. There. It was very chaotic, and it allowed Mr. Harper's government to get things done. Mr. Trudeau and his current minority, it's more predictable, particularly with the NDP, where Mr. Trudeau has either made deals with the NDP, or he's gambled that the NDP doesn't want an election. I think those that argue that minority government is better because it forces the government to listen, there's a point to that. But I think also, I think it means the government is always sort of expedient and bullying, trading off that way, etc. Whether minority government is ultimately a good thing or bad thing is hard to say. And there's a very well-known book a number of years ago by Peter Russell from the University of Toronto. And Dr. Russell is generally an advocate of minority government. But the title of his book is called Two Cheer for Minority Government. So two cheer, as in it's good, but it's not great. Uh, Russell, he feels it's the best system available for Canada. I'm not sure it's necessarily better or worse than that. It's quite different than the situation under majority governments. That's a very typically Canadian title for a book, right? It's pretty good. We're not saying it's great, but it's pretty good and we can work with it. I wanted to turn to a topic that has been discussed in the media for some time in terms of government power. Stephen Harper in the last government, he had a reputation in the public sphere for quote unquote, concentrating power in his office outside of parliament and sort of sidelining the role of parliament. And now Justin Trudeau, when he ran for office, he ran partly on attacking that record with a pledge to sort of restore the role of parliament. But there are many who argue that he's actually continued Harper's approach or arguably even been worse in sidelining parliament, especially during this pandemic. So I wanted to get your assessment on that. And Are things actually getting worse in terms of concentration of power in the prime minister's office? Or do these things go in cycles? And are there historical precedents for that cycle? I mean, scholars have long tried to figure out how can we measure relative prime ministerial power? How can we decide that this PMO was more controlling than this one? You know, is it a constant increase? Is that there? It's difficult to really gauge the context and baseline vary. I'll illustrate what I mean in a couple of ways. Comparing Mr. Harper and Mr. Trudeau, both run pretty controlling operations in PMO. I would say the biggest difference is that I'm not sure that Mr. Harper really cared. (laughs) Quite frankly, it didn't seem to really bug him that much. I believe that Mr. Trudeau and the Liberals, they do care. Mr. Trudeau is perhaps a little more disingenuous uh, at sort of uh, suggesting that, oh, it's very inclusive, we're all a team, etc. there. Mr. Harper, if you talk to people involved in the Harper government, he actually ran very good internal processes. There was a lot of thoughtful things going on, but they never really talked about it. First rule of the Harper government was he didn't talk about the Harper government. (laughs) 
So it looked like this very control freak kind of black box sort of thing going on when there was more going on. Whereas Mr. Trudeau, you know, his style is to be more open, you know, ministers certainly have more freedom to communicate publicly and things there. We know that the Trudeau PMO runs a very tight ship. But as I said, the, the context, you can't really compare it because the styles are different. So who ultimately is more controlling is perhaps hard to say. I think when it comes to particularly to the relationship with Parliament, Mr. Trudeau had the advantage of coming in a majority situation. Generally, when prime ministers first come into power, they're big on Parliament. They're big on, on opening up and doing new things and stuff like that. And, you know, Brian Mulroney was when he was elected in 1984. Jean Chrétien, I'd say, was in 1993. Mr. Harper, though, he came into a minority in 2006. He didn't have as much room to maneuver or try new things. So there perhaps wasn't as much there. When Mr. Trudeau was elected in 2015, he had a majority, you know, everything was on top and stuff there. So he he did things like Senate reform, first of all, which is a huge thing. He also introduced, you know, the Committee on Electoral Reform, the Special Committee on Electoral Reform, which at first sounded really good, etc. And he did some other things that were sort of at least symbolically good in that way. We now see under Mr. Joe again, particularly in a minority, the government's running a very tight ship. The government is really fighting back. <laughs> against Parliament in various ways. And we saw that, though, under Mr. Harper as well. Back when Mr. Harper had minorities in particular, up in 2006 to 2011, there were some real showdowns with Parliament, of course. There was the 2008 crisis where Mr. Harper's government was going to fail and Mr. Harper went to the Governor General and got the Parliament paroled, etc. So there was some showdown. There were some interesting showdowns there. And now, more recently, in, in, under Mr. Trudeau, we certainly see some showdowns, for example, on the issue of uh, the Public Health Agency of Canada and the, and the two Chinese Canadian scientists. The government was being found in contempt, really, of Parliament there. We also see the government's recent refusal to implement a private member's bill on taxation legislation, which seems to have been resolved, but that was quite shocking as well. So we see in both cases really where the government, both Mr. Harper and the Trudeau government, are willing to thwart Parliament's will, especially in a minority situation where they don't have a control anyways that way and so on. Comparing who's better, who's worse, I think is very hard to say. And then also just on a final point, I'll say, when we look back at how Recent prime ministers compare with historically with other prime ministers from whether it was 20 or 50 years ago and something like that. It's even harder to figure out just how controlling things were. Again, because the context has changed. A huge change has been communications. Modern prime ministers now are extremely controlling of communications because the communications environment has changed. We're now, of course, in just a kaleidoscope world of 24-7 social media like that. There's really very few media gatekeepers so we had there were decades ago. PMOs are much more controlling about communications than they were 50 years ago, but the communication farm has completely changed from 50 years ago. So all I have to say is that trying to measure sort of who's worse or who's better is really hard to say. The context keeps changing. And again, I say just to close here that this is built into our system. It's not a flaw of our system. It's built into our system. The government is responsible for to Parliament and for getting its programs through Parliament and surviving through Parliament and stuff there. Guess what? They tend to be control freaks about Parliament. They try and control it at every opportunity and try and stay ahead of the game because that, that's how our system is built. That's a totally fair point about it being really a subjective assessment trying to measure concentration of power. And really great point about the communications environment. We're talking about this on a podcast, which didn't exist 20 years ago. So if you consider government's calculus in the role of parliament, they're probably going to have to weigh the value of things like, for example, controlling communications against the political headache from allowing more latitude. And I think that's particularly interesting to me, given that 
You've got a man like Stephen Harper who came out of the reform movement, but over time came to conclude that it was just better to control things out of PMO because it was just too much of a hassle not to. And then with Justin Trudeau as well, who I think ran on a platform of restoring the role of parliament, but he too over time, and especially with a minority, has sort of concluded that it's just too much of a headache to allow parliament to have too large a role. You'd raise the issue of the parliament asking the Public Health Agency of Canada to release documents to Parliament. This was, of course, in relation to the firing of two researchers at Winnipeg's National Microbiology Lab a couple of years ago. Of course, this has become very salacious given the pandemic and the fact it was a viral lab and it had a relationship with Wuhan. So it's raised all sorts of questions. But for the purposes of our conversation, the debate is over the fact that the agency has refused. They refused to follow Parliament's order. That raised quite a few eyebrows. And the government has now argued that there are national security issues that are engaged if the public health agency were to release those documents. Those issues trump Parliament's right to see those documents. So I guess I put it to you, who's right here? Does Parliament have a right to see those documents? Or are those national security issues justification for PHAC to not release them? National security, however you define it exactly, has become increasingly a thorny issue for Parliament. Parliament is supreme. Parliament has the right to basically know all and, and make sense for all persons, papers, and records, etc., they really have you know, complete constitutional supremacy. But on the other hand, there are some practical things to consider about whether or not should Parliament know, particularly publicly know, about security issues. What are those security issues? What's going on? It's hard to say. To me, this is a, the latest example where there's been a showdown where the government has at least, there's at least plausible arguments, not say agreeing with them, but there's plausible arguments. There's sensitivities here about sort of the, who knows what thesis procedures about etc. there going on that the government certainly doesn't want to reveal publicly. Go back, you find it certainly again under Mr. Harper, there's some good examples, the Afghan detainee documents of 2010 and others there. It's basically basic argument. Parliament wants information. The government's saying, no, no, it's too sensitive. We can't do it. And so over time, the Parliament has certainly developed some mechanisms to try and deal with this. We have the Special Security Review Committee. There's been attempts to kind of figure out, can parliamentarians have private or controlled access to documents, things like that there. There's been attempts to try and solve this, have third parties redact stuff, etc. there. But I mean, it's, these are all basically ad hoc solutions because it's very difficult to institutionalize a permanent solution that resolves this issue. Like Parliament's right to know with the legitimate possible security needs of the nation. Who decides those security needs? Is it the government? And do they conveniently happen to fit with the government's need to avoid embarrassment or scandal and stuff? You know, it just might be a coincidence there. It's thorny to say. And speaking to the particular issue of PHAC, I find that a very difficult one to deal with because it is one that is timely in this time of pandemic, etc. Because the individuals are of Chinese descent, there's particular issues with our tensions with China. There's all sorts of things that are very relevant to Canadian public life today. They're also very sensitive what's going on. Parliament's not necessarily good at sensitive issues. Parliament is a blunt instrument. When parliamentarians do things like call for PHAC and bring the director of PHAC, Ian Stewart, before the bar of the House, which you haven't seen in decades, like that there, I mean, this is not just out of altruistic interest and stuff. The, these are political parties. They're here to embarrass the government. They're there to rip the government apart. They win the election there. So this is something, again, that scholars have talked about, not just in national security, but anything, particularly anything to do with, with public servants and government stuff there, is that parliament is a blunt instrument. Everyone in parliament is trying to get ahead. They're trying to, to get advantage on each other that way. And is that how appropriate is, is parliament as an instrument for dealing with sensitive issues, particularly of individual misconduct, of, of things that are not sort of just clear black and white policy choices, et cetera, there. And again, there's been a number of writings on that, again, where like, 
Parliament, it's too blunt an instrument to really do subtle investigations, to really get to the heart of things like that. And again, that certainly comes up in PHAC. The national security angle is one part. Uh, the fact this involves public servants and, and the public service is another. What has to figure out, is Parliament the best instrument here? Or alternatively, should the government just take all the blame? regardless. And so many argue that rather than sort of having parliament do these subtle things, that's why we have question period. That's where things like that, where people can just rail away at the government like that. The government can defend itself as best it can. And that's where the blunt instrument best works for parliament as opposed to more, more subtle uh, areas like that. But it, this is an ongoing issue. We've seen this in various forms over the years, and we're going to see it in the future as well. I'm just curious, as far as you're aware, is there another situation where the attorney general has taken the speaker representing parliament to court over a demand for documents? I'm not aware of any precedent for that. So I agree that Parliament is a political body and part of what they are doing is not just official job, but there's obviously partisan jockeying going on there. But has there been a situation where the government has gone to court to block a demand from Parliament to get documents released? I'm not aware of anything. I mean, just I've looked at sort of what others have written and stuff and no one seems to come up with a suitable recent precedent in there, perhaps anywhere in, in recent history. And so it's very puzzling to see What's going on here? Why is the government digging its heels in so much? Why is it going to court on this? Why are they tangling with the Speaker of the House, who's a Liberal MP himself? What's going on here? This is a kaleidoscope. What's going on here? That here, we're getting into all kinds of complex legal territory. So it's the Attorney General working as both the Minister of Justice. It's the Attorney General wearing his hat in that regard. It's moving very much into legal waters. Parliament's a blunt instrument. Parliament doesn't really do subtlety very well, and the law, particularly, is full of subtleties. What's going on here? It's definitely concerning. What's the, the extent to which the government is digging its heels in? Ten years ago, I mentioned the Harper minority government year earlier. For those that remember, back in March 2011, Parliament was moving into a showdown like that. In that case, it was through the access to documents being to F-35 fighter jet purchases. And in that one, there started to be a showdown. The Speaker of the House at the time found a prima facie ruling that the government was in contempt of Parliament. And so things were building, not as far as they've gone here, but they were building. And if people recall, back in March 2011, this and a couple of other things led to a non-confidence vote, led by the Liberals, where the opposition voted non-confidence in Mr. Harper's government, brought it down, mainly over these issues of contempt of parliament. And of course, what happened in 2011? The government came back and won the majority. That kind of canceled out the whole issue because we went to an election. And regardless of contempt of parliament, whatever like that, it goes to the election that the people speak and the people, for whatever reason, rewarded the government with a majority. In this case, what we're seeing here is really the issue just keeps building. It's, it's going to keep building, the PHAC issue. I'm not necessarily advocating an election going on, but an election would be the best way of solving this issue, probably. It's just going to dig its heels in further and further. And an election would theoretically probably resolve the logjam one way or the other, as it did in 2011. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that because that actually segues perfectly into the last question I wanted to put to you, which is speculation about an election. We are less than two years out from the last election. There's been a pandemic that's still ongoing in the meantime, but there seems to be a pretty firm consensus that we're probably going to get an election call uh, very soon. And there is now a debate over whether the governor general should refuse that request to hold an election. So I wanted to get your take on that. Is the governor general obligated to accede to the prime minister's request in this case? Yes, that's my absolutely clear answer. This is where, back to the beginning, I was saying about how the Westminster system is particularly characterized by a lot of unwritten conventions 
the governor general is really at the top here, where the governor general really acts on the advice of the prime minister. And there's theoretical talk about, you know, what's the reserve power of the governor general? You know, what, under what point could a governor general refuse prime minister's request? And the last case we've had that is 1926, and we're still debating whether that was correct for the governor general to do so and so on. But certainly, I mean, even under all the scenarios people have thought about, there's really no serious reason why the governor general would say no to the prime minister's request for an election. Okay, well, thank you very much for that. And I want to thank you again very much for joining us today and to all our listeners for tuning in. And we'll catch you all in the next episode.